Hello and welcome to the Tech Disruptors podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence. In this podcast series, we talk with CEOs and management teams about their views on disruption and how it's driving their decision-making and strategy. My name is Mandeep Singh and with me today is Shravant Aluru, CEO of Avatar. Welcome to the podcast, Shravant. Thank you so much, Mandeep. All my pleasure to be here with you. Great. Look, we've got a lot of CEOs and, you know, executives on this podcast, and most of them have been publicly traded companies. So what attracted us, you know, was just your background and what you're doing into this new space around 3D content. So maybe we can start off with your background. How did you start this company and who are your main backers? Sure, Mandeep. You know, to start with a warm hello to the audience. My pleasure to be having this this audience, if you will, and the esteemed nature of it. A little bit on me, I started my journey, Mandeep, as a computer vision fanatic, if you will. This was early 2000s at Microsoft. I was just out of an engineering degree and pretty much a geek trying to look at immersive technologies and the evolution of it. If you remember the multiplayer tennis games on Xbox, and this was that era. Still early days, but even back then, if you see, Xbox used to have something called Kinect, which was a depth sensor. Sitting on top of it, doing real-time camera AI, uh, most mostly computer vision in early stages of AI, but doing use cases like skeleton tracking and, and the likes, allowing for, say, a multiplayer use, gaming use case to be built on top of it. I'd say that's where my passion for the power of the convergence of AI and computer vision started for me, which I think is one of the reasons why I started up there. But, you know, right after that, I spent, did my B-School from Wharton, spent about six years as a tech investment banker. And I'd say I was very fortunate to have seen a lot of organic and inorganic investments happening from both the OEM giants, if you will, from the smartphone ecosystem equally. I'd say players like social players and others who started looking at the requirement for digital web to shift from the flat device that we call mobile today into something that's honestly more party possible with the physical experience that we have, right, which has depth, spatial depth. And in fact, if you go in, that's when that's when I started realizing that 60% of our sensory perception is visual in nature. And today, the digital web is flat, right? So we're literally not attuning to 60% of our sensory perception as humans. And that's that's what I think validates the need, which you will see happen in the next decade as Web3 evolves. But that was probably where I, I really started feeling that there's going to be an inflection where in the decade from now, you would likely see a device which is a wearable shifts the digital web from, uh, you know, flat experience into something that's more life-size 3D, will probably remove the divide between digital web and physical web. I can tell you that today our technology has come to a point where photorealism wise, it's very hard to tell once you see a manipulated reality as to which one is physical and which one is virtual, right? And that I think is a Turing test moment of this shift of 2D to 3D, if you will. So that was the thesis which started my passion for the space as well as my decision to probably quit Deutsche and start Avatar. So that's the backdrop context of my background. I'd say I've been very fortunate. You know, my co-founder was working with me. So we've been together for the last 10 years working together. I have still no clue why he finds my company enjoyable, but certainly I do and he reciprocates. So we've been fortunate to have a very strong leadership team with a persistent focus for the last seven years. And in that, he runs the product. I run the engineering side, if you will. And that's how we split it. And both of us are part of the market-oriented effort so that we can think of PMF. Now, as, at Avatar, we have Sequoia and Tiger Global as our institutional backers. I, I would be very grateful to them in this journey, given that, as you'd appreciate, we spent about three, four years as an R&D trying to do the building blocks of 3D 
which are almost prerequisite for anything that you do. And then thereafter, we literally built consumer experiences using this power of spatial depth and remove friction from consumers' experience today in shopping, which is, I'd say, been the last three years' journey. So we've had a lot of R&D investments. We've raised about 55 million in total from Sequoia and Tiger. We've done a Series A, which Sequoia gladly led, and then followed up by a Series B, which was 45 million announcement we did early this year. But that's the context of where we are. Today, I'm, I'm fortunate to say that we have been an inside engineering engine powering a lot of the large names that you see today. Shifting from 2D to 3D, call it AR, call it VR, call it Metaverse. In each of these, the fundamental block that's required is the shift of 2D to 3D, right? Both from a discovery perspective, equally from a content perspective. And I'd say that's been our core focus, right? Solving that those building blocks, while others evolve the ecosystem to the Web3 that we think will happen in the decade forward. So is that why you picked the name Avatar? Because of that reason that you know, everything will be 3D or can 3D be without an avatar? I mean, avatar is a Sanskrit word. And if you go go to its actual origins, it means incarnation, right? It, it actually is not a human avatar like many people think about it given a movie. It actually means incarnating anything again. And so our real core purpose is to remove this divide between digital reality and physical reality such that tomorrow when it's blended, you can't make the difference out, as I, as I said. And for us, it was literally creating avatars of everything that's physical or imagination into this virtual digital reality that's going to get superimposed. So that's the reason why we picked avatar. It was effectively saying that we are here to do that inside building block of transitioning the gap between the 2D and 3D formats, which requires reincarnation, if you will, of something as is in the physical world, the dimension. Yeah. So when you say you are... Uh creating the building blocks for 3D content. I'm curious to hear from your perspective why you think there is an inflection point now for 3D content. Is it more that there's more that kind of hardware or what is it that, I mean, we've been talking about 3D for years. So why not? I'd say that very good question, Mandeep. In fact, something that I've been tracking for two decades now. So my personal view on this is there are two sides to this. One is a hardware side of the answer and the other is this just pure consumer behavior and sophistication awareness adoption part. From a hardware perspective, I would say back when I was in, in Microsoft, you know, Xbox was still a gaming console and would be in four per, four, two, three, four percent of the user's home, right? So it wasn't a penetration that was meaningful enough. While you had capabilities in the hardware, I would say they weren't in the user's hand. The shift that happened was mobile. And mobile AR, and I would say the selfie generation camera become, became very important. And what that drove in the last 10 years, I would say, is a huge increase in the CPU and the GPU capabilities on a mobile phone, primarily driven by the AR inflection that you, you guys have covered enough. So that is, I would say, one of the hardware inflections that was needed, right? A device that's now in a consumer hand, which means there is real penetration and is capable with the hardware that's required. I would say the journey has been 40 year old. You know, the hardware was probably there in 20 years back, but wasn't in the consumer's hand. It was very expensive. So the cost has come down. The compute cost per compute is hardly anything. It's marginal today compared to where it was even 10 years back. And that's the hardware revolution. That's behind us, Mandeep. And that's why you'd see that today, most of our work is on mobile phones and desktops. And we're able to do what we need to do on those, on those hardwares. The second evolution, I'd say, is more consumer. And I would say camera as a device has grown in its stature over the last 10 years, right? Today, it started with selfies. 
it went on to take the deep learning evolution that happened where people started using AI to do image recognition, image manipulation, uh, all those utility values that you've seen, which today show up in say a delivery logistics with the camera doing a lot of work that humans used to do, say 10 years back. Now in all of that evolution, consumers have started getting camera awareness and adoption curve, right? At some level in the last 10 years. And that I think has been a phenomenal shift. In fact, I was surprised in the last five years on the consumer traction we've seen. In fact, this is more specific to the Gen Z and the early millennials. And in that segment, what you'd see is this is a camera generation. They are so used to cameras through the Snapchat filters, through the, the TikTok videos that they do, everything being through a camera, that today extending camera for utility value for a consumer journey is now a viable option, which wasn't, say, even five years back. And you'd see that evidence in great names like a Snapchat, for example, if you look at how they've grown the camera-based engagement curve, right? So I'd say these are the two biggest inflection points I see if I were to reflect back. And both very meaningful. If not for those two, we wouldn't be having this discussion today. So that Snapchat AR filters is all 3D content? No, I'm, I'm saying it's camera. It's, right? it's camera? Okay. But I'm curious, like, where do you integrate your technology with what Snapchat camera is doing? So let's, let's take an example, right? Without taking Snapchat, let's take any captive platform today, which has a captive supply-demand ecosystem that they own. Consumer their ownership and then maybe suppliers which are promoting content or perhaps even goods, right, in our case. Now, in, in such case, what happens is there is a recurring use of, for example, in commerce, there's season collections coming and churning out every season, right? Now, that content has to be delivered to a consumer home for a consumer to see one of those virtual couches in their living space and then make a decision. Now, it's an ongoing recurring business. Now, what Snapchat has very well done is, say, create a camera interface to do that. However, there's a need for this entire ecosystem to be built. And there are many problems, especially if you look at content side, it's been all manual today. And Mandeep, that's a big challenge in terms of how do you scale this up and get the entire content to 3D to start with. That was a building block to come back to your question. And what we've done is taken a neural deep learning attempt at it, which is perhaps the reason why we're part of the Metaverse Standards Forum, if you've seen, part of those 42 members that have started the approach of making this open standards, right? So that everybody can benefit. But that's an AI element where an algorithm today can do what humans were doing yesterday. And in that process, create that building block that's required to transition all the suppliers to be 3D ready to start with. And then comes the next challenge, which is how do you then drop it into a consumer home? How do you create that friction-free consumer journey with this new dimension of depth that's been added with camera? And I would say that is the other focus area where we've been focused on commerce. Now, to your question, how are we different? We actually don't think of ourselves as a captive platform, Mandeep. The biggest differentiation for us is we are a white-label platform with a very clear focus on being the building block enabler, an inside engine that solves for prerequisites before anyone is able to do what they want to do at scale. And what Snapchat's doing is the next step, which is actually creating that impact with consumers that they own and bring this in a particular use case. I think we are one step behind them. So for us, we think of us as a horizontal underlying enabler, while each of these captive platforms are verticals on top as the industry grows. Could I think of, you know, your service as an API call that a Snapchat or Roblox or Epic or Unity or anyone in this space is making? I mean, we are not yet playing the gaming space. We've been primarily focused on utility value so far, Mandeep. So commerce okay. has a core focus. But you're right. I mean, all of these are using us as a software, as a 
you know, platforms as a service is a better way to think of us, but an underlying white labeled platform as a service that they're following within their uh, captive. And so what are the chances that they would want to do this on their own as opposed to using a service or a platform as a service call like yours? No, that's a brilliant question. See, Mandeep, the core focus for us is actually very different from an e-commerce player, for example, who's doing a D2C engagement of selling goods, right? Their business model is about selling goods. What we are really solving for is the supplier challenge for them, that marketplace. It is not a marketplace challenge. It goes beyond the core focus of the marketplace into sometimes suppliers. So what you would see is the vendors in a marketplace today use us to actually get onto the seller interfaces and thereby be enabled on a marketplace. And that's a pre-step to marketplaces, which, and so you should think of us as partners rather than competition for them. Uh, no, I, I was just trying to draw a comparison. Are you more like Twilio where, you know, it's all B2B, but you know exactly what companies are using Twilio for? And that's where there's always that risk that if a company is making too many calls to the service, there is that question, should we outsource it or should we build it in-house because we are and so that's where i wasn't very clear like in terms of where do you fit in that stack i mean i understand to render 3d content you need different things and you're providing one of the foundational elements of it but where do you fit in that stack in analogy to explain this better i think one thing that i am proud to share is last last week we announced shopify and the commerce integrations okay Let's take Shopify as an example, because that will help you understand. Now, what Shopify does is literally allow e-stores being built for a merchant such that they can sell to their consumers when they come to their merchant.com web link, right? Mm -hmm. Shopify is a white-labeled e-store that's powering that entire stack. Now, what we've kind of done is partnered with Shopify to pre-integrate our entire stack within a Shopify system, which means the on the supply side, the ERP integration is already done. And on the front-end side, our renderer, goes and sits within the Shopify e-store and then we give the data back to the vendors because 3D and camera is what we own, Mandeep, for any merchant that we onboard. And with after, anything that you see within a camera for our partners would be owned by Avatar and it's on Avatar's cloud. And that's why I say we are a platform as a service because we are the ones that actually own the consumer engagement within camera and then give analytics back on the consumer behavior to the merchant. So we are very different to a Trulio in that sense. I mean, we're not an SDK or an API level SDK kind of a play or a typical SaaS play either. We actually get integrated into the websites and the apps of our front end. And then we control from our cloud what happens with the consumer within the camera. And the catalog is now within the camera. So you can imagine that there are two flows for a consumer when they come to our partner websites. One is the erstwhile 2D flow where they're seeing carousel of images of products. And the other flow, they just simply come into the camera and start discovering products. But the canvas of that discovery is their home. Now, if it's a living space, you're probably dropping a couch in a center table and a chair. And that entire catalog is again powered by us. So we have enough analytic and, and we need to own this honestly, Mandeep, because we're still early. It feels like beginning of internet in terms of consumer sophistication, right? It feels like 99 for Web3 today, if you were to ask me. And from that context, it's too early to bet on today's formats being the final format. So there's going to be iteration. There's going to be a lot of consumer data-driven evolution of the consumer experience. And so we needed to own the consumer data to evolve the consumer experience forward. And so from our vision perspective, we, we own the front end as well, as much as we own the back end. And we are the ones connecting the dot between the supply and the user end, which is the so, brand. Just to tie everything together, 
it has to start from a camera, whether that camera is on the phone or it's on an AR or a VR device, but that's how your product will be rendered, right? I mean, to be fair, today we've sold the desktop through a virtual room. So what you'd see is anyone who doesn't have a camera device is actually being shown the same 3D experience where they can rotate swivel in a virtual life-size room. But that's on a 2D screen. We call it 2.5D. But that's just to make sure that the consumers who haven't yet shifted into AR, I would say 30% consumers. If you look at Snapchat and Deloitte's report, given you took that name, they released an industry research last year. And they said in US, there are about 100 million shoppers who are using AR. And about 96% of those shoppers say, I want AR for my next shopping experience. So those are honestly the guys who are saying, I want to be in camera when I'm shopping, if, if you were to think of the analogy, right? So and are you of the view that AR will hit mainstream before VR? AR already has hit mainstream in utility value across logistics, where camera computer vision is doing a lot of sorting and things like those. From a consumer perspective, you can see the AR ads. That's a huge industry and has grown very healthily over the last five years. There is the AR commerce utility value that's already real. VR is still early because VR headsets haven't yet reached the inflection. AR you can do on a mobile device today. I think Meta may disagree with you on that because they claim they have sold over 10 million Oculus headsets. So yeah. who do you want as a VR 3.1 or 3.4 billion the last I saw of smartphone penetration, right? You're right. You're spot on, right? For those 10 million, VR is real. For the rest of those, from that 10 million to 3.5 would I'd say still be a mobile AR today. So Apple can really develop their AR business without even launching a headset? Would that be a fair guess in terms of what they could do potentially with the current smartphones? They probably already have. If you see AR kit, which is their reality kit, it actually is a software platform which allows developers to create 3D experiences on an mobile phone today. And that's been the strategy for the last five years. So yeah, you're right. You're actually... Okay. Summarized it well from at least the info I have. So let's get to, you know, the business model. So how are you monetizing or is it too early to think about monetization for what you're doing with that platform as a service offering? I think we've already covered the journey of utility value and monetization for mobile AR. And that is where we see revenues today, which is to say that today in a Shopify, for example, for any platform that takes us on, we get a 1% of transaction GMV that goes through that particular product that has been converted to 3D through our platform. It's almost like a post outcome, actual value created for the vendor by an additional sale. And thereafter taking a 1% cut of that, right, has is, is been the strategy. And the reason why we've been able to do that is we are seeing about three times transaction uplift for consumers across geographies today. The moment we shift to 2D listing, which has images, with a 3D enabled listing. And this is across marketplaces, across geographies, across categories. We're today live with consumer electronics, large appliances, home improvement, furniture, all of those use cases, equally fashion, fashion accessories, think of jewelry, sunglasses, and so on. I'd say barring apparel, we probably already shown ROI across everything. Apparel is a big challenge, which we'll talk later from a technology perspective, which is still to evolve. But having said that, with that kind of a utility value, our model has been so far saying, let's first drive higher revenues for our clients and then take a small cutoff to it by leaving 99% value on the table. And that's been fortunately what drove our flywheel, I would say, because once 
once we're a revenue growth solution and the cost savings proposition with the AI that we have for the supply, you're literally talking the two things that really matter, right? From an ROI perspective. So in what you are delivering, would you need ads or it just kind of removes the need to have digital ads for driving commerce? Today, what we're doing is we we think of ourselves as there's an existing path to purchase funnel, which starts upper funnel with awareness and consideration that's ads, goes into middle funnel, which is usually the D2C websites, like say uh, Samsung is a client of ours that I can talk about, samsung.com, right, where consumers come and purchase. Equally, there is a listing across all marketplaces of Samsung's product. So today, there's an existing flow of 2D in all of these three, right? Consumers on, say, a Facebook or a Google looking at a Samsung ad and then going to purchase a, a consumer going to samsung.com, which is their own websites and purchasing or last mile, which is a consumer on a marketplace buying the Samsung product. And our focus has been, we need to be an horizontal solution here because rather than reinventing wheel, we'd rather be at the right time at the right place where consumers are already doing this and simply upgrade that 2D engagement into 3D. So, so far we've not tried to be very inventive. We are simply going after where does 2D exist? and replacing it. So you'll see we are global partners with both Facebook and Google ecosystem, Meta and Google ecosystems. And we have plug and play ability to support those platforms for our merchants. Equally, we get integrated into our merchants' websites and their apps because that's their direct to consumer strategy. And then we support them with any marketplace listings, which we call bottom funnel because that's usually the purchase intent. A consumer is usually already clear that they want to buy something. And, and that's where we usually focus on the KPI, which has said 95% of the revenues today, Mandeep, for your context, are in bottom funnel, where we're driving higher revenues and they're taking a, a small cut of it. Okay, so probably uh, you're doing what a direct response ad was doing before in terms of driving conversion. And that's because that 3D experience is more engaging. So guessing the conversion for a 3D kind of rendered image is higher than a 2D rendered image. Yep, we're seeing 200% uplift. So we're seeing almost 200% uplift that we're driving across categories on an average across all geographies. Okay, maybe one more question on technology. So when we talk to Unity and Roblox, this term neural radiance fields comes up a lot. Is that what you're using underlying or are you using something else for the 3D content that you are rendering? Yep, we are the first commercial neural radiance fields AR renderer in the world. Mandeep, and I'm proud to say that. But, you know, that's been a long journey, I would say. Neural radiance fields are the future of 3D in, in the way I see it and in the way I, I assume you've heard. And the reason is they're solving for that historical manual creation problem that the mesh world had. Equally, from a consumer perspective, there's a term called uncanny valley, which is, you would have heard this from Hollywood movies if, if you've seen some of the VFX movies. But the idea here is people get an eerie feeling when you have a close to real but not real render of anything, especially themselves, but equally for a couch even. And our subconscious minds are so trained with our eye every day that we catch this like an emotion, which is a subconscious emotion that gets triggered. You know, you may not be able to list the reason why you feel it, but you'll certainly feel it. And there's a lot of research that's gone into it. What neural radiance fields does is solve that problem because today 3D is a cheat code of trying to emulate the laws of physics around us into equations that can be run on a mobile device. Unfortunately, the mobile device computation is still very limited to try and do what lighting does in this real world. 
what neural radiance field solves for, it makes 3D as simple as a photo. In the sense that anyone can now just take any camera, simply take a scan of their product at their home and then get as his version like a photo does of the physical reality into the 3D world. And then you don't have to worry about quality assurance like most of our clients have been spending millions of dollars on an artist creating it, then someone in the merchandising team sitting and saying, is this good enough for my consumer? All of that is gone because it's now simply what is in your physical reality. And for large scale merchants, you simply set up a photo studio like you used to for images of products and be able to not worry about scaling it up, right? And that's the biggest unlock that this technology does for many problems. So it's being viewed today and I would give credit to Google DeepMind where that was where this got born, if you will, as a technology. They're using at least the public information they've released is that they're using it for like use cases like Waymo, which is an autonomous driving context where the same problem happens, right? How do you, how do you understand the world around you in 3D? Similarly, we are using it for commerce. You would see that this technology will pretty much democratize 3D and probably be looked as the biggest building block inflection that happened in the shift from 2D web to 3D web because it just cannot be done without this technology as we stand, as we stood yesterday. Then the question is, since you mentioned Google DeepMind, how much of what you have built is proprietary versus using an open source kind of version of what DeepMind is offering you? The big beauty of neural radiance fields is the deep learning nature of it, which is unlike a deterministic algorithm, this algorithm is neural. It learns with every conversion. In fact, any conversion that happens today, for example, on our technology or any render, improves the time, cost, and the quality of the next one. And so what we've kind of created is a win-win need for a central platform that gets the benefit of every partner and gives back the cumulative benefit to each of them. And, and that is a very, very important change in the way this was happening earlier to how we are tackling this problem. And I hope that gives you a little bit of comfort on why, what is the value that we create for, say, anyone who's thinking of doing, say, 2D to 3D at scale, because yeah. they, you know, a platform would have the benefit of data. Now, to your question, we are actually strong believers of open standards, open source, open to the extent we can, because our vision at Avatar is democratizing 3D. As I said, we're not a captive platform. Uh, so our aspirations are different. We want the industry to win. Let me take one more example. A company like Matterport, right? They made a name for themselves in terms of just 3D scans and what they can do in terms of taking your house and, and creating 3D version of the layout. What are they using under the hood? So today they're using complicated hardware, as you'd imagine. Cameras that have to be placed to take the images the way they need to be so that the content comes in. We solve that problem for them equally as we would for any other capital plan. And obviously, given the implicit, they'll need our renderer, given it's a proprietary stack, Mandeep, as I told you. See, there's this, to answer your question and, and this one together, I would say there are two, three puzzles to this. There's an AI algorithm part to it. There's a data part to it, which is, you know, any AI is a child AI without data. You can only make effective use cases and value come out of it if you train it. And training like a human mind for it to become an adult brain, it, just to draw an analogy, you need training sets. And that's what I call as data. And that is built over time. And that's a big moat for anyone who starts this journey earlier, right? Today, can a search engine beat Google any further? Probably not. A better algorithm will struggle. Primarily because it's competing with the page rank algorithm with the data that it has and the learning that it has. And so that's a big moat that any deep learning AI in general thinks, which is an inflection. Third piece, which I would say is the consumer side of the story, right? 
how do you do this for consumers, which I think is also another mode for us because we are gathering data, which is agnostic in the sense that today call ourselves as contextual reality platform, Mandeep. So we are also able to today create a scan of the room of a consumer. You'll soon see that we'll have living portable spaces. So a consumer today, Avatar will have a passport, if you will, of their home, as well as the products that they've already bought and only for the, their context. We're very clear about privacy. We're on the consumer end here. And we want to remove friction using that without any ads. So I stay away from ads because we honestly want to solve friction for consumers. And I think ads are a bit of friction. But we're trying to remove those steps and see if we could, if the colors of the wall are known and if the user opts in and says, can you do basic interior designing for me from the catalog, from a marketplace into my home? That's a similar product AI, which we today have access to. So we're thinking about how do we bring this analytics feedback loop back into perhaps the experience itself. And I think there's a lot of value there that we'll discover. So what and, you're saying is your technology can be deployed outside an e-commerce use case. It, it can be horizontal in the sense if if somebody did want to build an alternative to Matterport, then you can provide them the foundational blocks and they can actually use your technology to come up with a competing app. Yeah, I would say even Matterport could do the same. They could leverage the AI that helps them do the same right we are agnostic, as I said, of which captive partner. We are thinking industry and want to grow the pie. Because as long as we grow the pie, everyone will win. Is, is but, but, but in terms of the training data that you have accumulated over time, it's more centered around e-commerce. I mean, going back to your partnership with Shopify. And again, the algorithm works best when you have been training the algorithm over time. So would that be a fair characterization? Luckily, we have a degree of freedom there, Mandeep, which is... Fortunately, we don't learn categories or objects. We learn surfaces and materials, by which I mean that when you look at a chair or a refrigerator, plus the same, it's a different concave contour from a shape perspective, and it's a different material, right? Leather versus denim versus others would have different properties to it, bases light falling on it. So for our training, we're surface agnostic. We can actually do any object today. And the beauty is, as we learn, a wood that shows up in a cabinet will show up in a chair, will show up in a tree that you scan tomorrow. So the material learning actually is long-term, right? And the surface learning is long-term. So you'd see today we're pretty much category agnostic from an engineering standpoint. GTM standpoint, you're right, Mandeep. We wanted to prove utility value. So what we said was, let's pick commerce and start with the first categories and just go after them. And however, the training that's happened through that can be applied to your question to anything else because the training is agnostic of commerce or even subcategories of commerce. It's actually surfacing. The world around us is just simply that. Around the infrastructure, like, is it deployed on public cloud? Uh, the platform, you mentioned platform as a service. Like, where is your solution hosted and how are companies deploying it? Yeah, it's Avatar Cloud. We, we have interfaces for the supply merchandising side. We have interfaces for the product and engineering guys, which could plug us in. And, and those interfaces are more data analytics and dashboards because the work is done once integrated, everything else is being done by the platform. So maybe paint a picture for us, you know, five or 10 years out. How big do you think this 3D image-driven commerce could become? And what would you need to do to do what you are doing at scale? I mean, I can tell you that 3D commerce is now the decision that everyone wants to do it and it's a, it's become a standard. 
and this you will hear from pretty much every marketplace if you were to talk to their the experts within. The decision is made primarily driven by the ROI proposition, Mandeep. So 10 years down the lane, I cannot I cannot imagine any catalog not being 3D enabled. And that I can give you with a lot of confidence. Now, I don't know if it's going to happen on a wearable. I don't know if it's going to happen on a mobile yard. Those are still question marks. But the 2D to 3D shift, right? And the ability to at least drop that couch in your home would have happened. Today, marketplaces are maybe already 5%-ish across names already 3D ready with 5% of their catalog from a consumer perspective. I think that will go to 100% in the next five years, not given the inflection we're seeing. I do think there is still a lot more to do on the metaverse side of the story, which is the true evolution, right? If you look at research from, say, Morgan Stanley, you will see extraordinary numbers being assigned to the industry size. Now, Google search away. No, but I guess uh, maybe uh, we can spend one more minute on just what we are seeing with autonomous driving and Tesla, I mean, they are also doing 3D rendering through all the cameras they have inside the car. Are they using something else for that 3D conversion? I mean, is there a use case that you have in, in that as well? So Mandeep, there are two ways to do it. One is take a LiDAR sensor and put an expensive hardware which can do the 3D scanning. That's through a hardware approach of lasers. And there's a software approach, which is what we're taking, which is the ability to just use any camera, the billions of cameras in circulation already, no hardware change. We can do, AI can do what's needed to shift that 2D to 3D. So I'd say Google right now and Waymo, if you look at their research report, is trying to do the second of keeping the cost down yet solve the problem. Tesla has taken, a, they have many LiDAR sensors around. So for a flagship product, this isn't even a challenge. This is honestly a challenge for the products which are more price sensitive. Great. And just one more question around the IP and the moat you have. So how would you characterize that? Like if there was a new company that feels inspired listening to this podcast episode and entrepreneurs like, I'm going to do something similar to what Shravanth is doing. How long do you think it will take for somebody to get started on this? And what are the other things that you feel someone else could do that you haven't done? Well, I think there are a lot of opportunities in general of using this upgrade of spatial depth for a lot of things that we do today, right? I'm just giving an example of a salesman, for example, who if I could see the background of the person that I'm talking to, and that's just private to me, and I could see their LinkedIn profiles perhaps get, while I'm speaking, the AI is listening to our conversation and start dropping interesting pointers towards how I could take the conversation more deeper, right? And make a relationship. Those things would be super, super productive. Imagine making a human superhuman in, in, in that at least use one use case, right? And there'll be many such use cases that will emerge out of this fundamental shift in my view. Imagine driving, if if you could have everything co-located to the physical reality, right? Instead of a turn that you see on a flat screen today, what if there's a big arrow coming on the road and that arrow is persistent while you drive towards the road? That experience would be far more intuitive and remove a lot of friction of missing some exit, which at least I still do. I might be a bit behind on this curve, but I still sometimes miss exits, right? Which would never happen if it's truly persistent. So I do think that there is a clear upgrade of utility value in the digital web 3.0. It will decentralize the experience such that consumers will first of all pull. So a lot of the privacy problems, not just payment, but even experience-wise can be solved. And equally, you'd see a lot of web 3 startups will, will think 3D, will think metaverse. And the reason is, 
it helps solve decentralization of experience as much as it helps solve decentralization of payments and puts the control as a pull experience into the consumer hands versus a push experience today where every consumer has to come to a website that is centrally located somewhere. Instead, the web will go to each consumer and the amount of personalization, amount of customization and thereby removal of friction is just immense. My suggestion to people would be think open understand the underlying shift of 2D to 3D that's happening and think utility value because I, I think the industry is still 90% novelty value, Mandeep, and that's what scares me sometimes. If you remember in the beginning of internet, people were trying to replicate physical magazines as is into a digital web where you literally swipe pages. And then someone came up with the idea of HTML, hypertext linking, and that changed the world as we know. That changed yeah. information consumption as we know. So I do feel that we shouldn't be prisoners of past. We should think of it as a complete fresh mind of saying, how does this new dimension of technology help solve, give degrees of freedom and remove constraints of yesterday's tech and thereby open utility value opportunities? I think there are many, honestly. So I want to end with some rapid fire questions. How long will it take to develop standards for Web3? I think it will require a lot of participation from big names. We've taken a big step with the Metaverse Standards Forum, and I'm very optimistic. And what is one technology or trend that you are most excited about over the next two years? I think Web3. While I know it feels like it's the dot-com of Web3 that just happened, I do think there's a serious utility value, and I think that is the future. So in my view, Web3, when I say Web3, I, I mean decentralization of the experience, payments, every bit of it, not just one chain, one crypto uh, use case. But I think all of those are real and I'm very excited about what that does to the digital world and how we live our lives. Any misconceptions about the 3D rendering or 3D experiences that you want to clear on this podcast? Well, I think most people think it's very expensive today. That problem was yesterday. And I would say that it is very cumbersome for a consumer experience or that consumers are still not ready. And I think that's also a fact of yesterday, but isn't relevant anymore. And enough evidence is there for someone who's serious to find what could go wrong with the assumptions that you're making around the adoption of 3D? I actually think the hardware side is the real question mark because, you know, you really need to solve the variable tech to make this happen in a, in a real way, right? Until then, there'll always be a percentage. Like I said, AR is 30% today. I think that's the real challenge. I don't think there's a hardware yet that I know that really challenges a mobile phone. And we need that moment to happen in the next five years. When are you going public? Hopefully uh, within the decade, we are seeing a lot of things from Mandi, but too early for me to, you know, we have the aspirations of a long game. So that would likely be an outcome in our journey. Great. Sharmant, it was wonderful to have you on the podcast. Wish you all the success and good luck with everything. And thank you to our listeners. And with that, we'll wrap up. Thanks a lot, guys.